wow. Like, do we get to just go home now? <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, hey, we are uh, jumping back into a series that we left off probably, I want to say maybe first of November. I can't really remember when it was. We started in the summer and then kind of ran through early fall, then got into Ecclesiastes, then we got into Christmas stuff. And now we're coming back to that series on the parables of Jesus. This takes us to the end of Matthew's gospel. Before I start launching into some of that, I did want to remember to say thank you to Kenny. Didn't he do a great job last week? Yeah. Uh, one of our elders shared with me, hey, Gordon, we need to hear more from Kenny. And uh, I agree. And so the Lord's really working through his life and the ministry that he has out in our community. Um, it is outstanding. And so I appreciate him so much. I'm so thankful for him for sharing with us last week. Um, again, we're in this, in this, jumping back into this series on the parables of the Lord Jesus. Today we're going to look at the parables of, a parable of the workers in the vineyard. I'm going to tell you up front my plan here. So I got into this thing, and I literally have, I told Terry before church today, I literally have over 50 pages of notes and sermon ready for you. So what I'm going to do is, because we want to beat the Baptists to lunch, I'm splitting this up into two weeks, okay? So you're going to get about 25 pages today, and you'll get about that much next week. So um, what we're going to end up doing is we'll look at the context or the occasion that prompts Jesus to then share this parable. Because if you miss the context, then you perhaps can miss the meaning of the parable. So that's kind of my plan, is to start with uh, the context, the stuff that comes before that prompts Jesus to then want to share this parable. Um, I'm going to give you just some of the introductory lines of the parable itself, and that's what I'm going to ask for you to stand and read with me. This is Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Again, just the introductory lines of the parable itself. Here we go. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Thank you so much. You may be seated. All right, so let's kind of look at those verses real quick, and then again, we're going to jump over and take a look at the occasion that prompts Jesus to want to share this. In verse 1, it says, for the kingdom of heaven is like. The phrase kingdom of heaven is synonymous throughout Matthew's gospel. He really likes the phrase kingdom of heaven, but sometimes he uses the phrase kingdom of God. He does that here in chapter 19. I believe he does it also in verse tw or chapter 20. But in any case, for in, in Matthew's mind, as well as for our reckoning, the word, the phrases kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are synonymous. No difference between between uh, how he uses those. Jesus says, verse 1, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Verse 2, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out into his vineyard. So the scenario that Jesus sets is there's this guy that has a vineyard and it's time for him to harvest the grapes in his vineyard. Now I know nothing about harvesting grapes. Never, never done that, never seen, been a place where they do that before. But the little bit that I read, I discovered that when the grapes are ready, they're ready. And you got to go get them because if you leave them on the vine, even for a handful of days and the sun starts to get to them, it can change the sugar content of those grapes. It can change the end product of those grapes, the flavor that they produce. And so when the, when the harvester is ready, I mean, you got to go out and you got to get those grapes. Um, end of verse 1, it says, The vineyard owner goes early in the morning and finds some day laborers and hires them for his vineyard. Basically, he's got people on staff that run his farm, but he doesn't have enough hands in the people on staff to take care of getting these grapes in the time frame that he needs to get them in. So he goes out and he hires some migrant workers. He hires some day laborers, and he agrees to pay them a denarius, which was a fair day's wage. It's what a soldier would have got, foot soldier would have gotten per day. And he agrees to pay them that for their time. Verse 2, after agreeing with the day laborers for a denarius a day, um, at, 
he sent them into God held himself. He sent them into his vineyard. Now, again, I want to stop here and I want to say, okay, what's the occasion that prompts Jesus to want to share this parable? I want to dig into that because, again, if we get the if we get the occasion wrong, if we don't consider uh, the scenario or the episode in Jesus' life that prompts him to want to share this, because these parables were not shared in a vacuum. He didn't just all of a sudden blurt out these parables. It's because somebody asked a question or because there was some incidents that happened in the life of Jesus that caused him to say, hey, you know what? Um, let me clarify the issue for you. Once upon a time, there was a, and then he shares these stories to help clarify the issues. I've got a uh, slide for you here, and this shows the rules of the parables. I, maybe you were here this summer when we covered this or not. It was the first sermon that I did in the parables of the, or in the series on the parables, where we talked about rules for interpreting parables. I want to make sure we get them right. Rule number three is that you've got to consider the context. That you don't want to just look at the parable in isolation, but that you want to consider what's the material that comes before it in the gospel, what's the material that comes after it, how does that affect or flavor or color our overall interpretation of what's going on in this parable. So with all that information, I want to flip from Matthew chapter 20 to Matthew chapter 19 and take a look at what it is that prompts Jesus, what precedes him telling this parable. So if you would, flip back in your Bibles, follow along with me on the screen, Matthew chapter 19 and beginning at verse 16. So that's the beginning of Jesus, uh, of this scenario before the parable. Matthew 19, verse 16. And behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, a church tradition holds that this guy, we learn a little bit later in this scenario, that he has great possessions, he's a person of great wealth. And so church tradition calls this the uh, Jesus and his encounter with the rich young ruler. Perhaps you've heard of that story before. Perhaps you've heard a sermon on that story before. I probably preached a sermon on that story before. But in any case, that's, what's, that's who Jesus is interacting with. So this guy asks him a question, presumably about how to get to heaven. He's asking about eternal life. Uh, verse 21 uh, Jesus, he gives, they have some interaction that goes on. And then in verse 21, Jesus kind of gives them the final end of the matter. And he says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come then and follow me. Now, again, I've preached on this text before. I don't know whether it was here or not, but I know I've taught on this text before. I've definitely studied on this text before. And every time I run into this text, I'm always wondering, did Jesus just prescribe works righteousness? I mean, it seems like in theological circles that Jesus just told this guy, if you go jump through these religious hoops, if you go and sell all that you got, then you'll get heaven. It seems like that's what Jesus is trying to tell him here. And friends, again, that reeks of works righteousness. Um, I mean, if I didn't know, what, but know better, I would be inclined to think that Jesus is giving a prescription for access to heaven that requires, for me, what does this do, what difference does it make in my life, that I got to rent for the rest of my life hadn't hit you yet. <laughs> I can't own anything, right? So I got to be a renter. I got to sell my car. I got to empty my bank account. That that's what's required for me to get to heaven. That I have to sell everything. It sounds like Jesus has given a prescription here to this guy. And does that same thing apply to me? Well, I, I mean, he tells, he tells him this is how you get eternal life. Maybe that's how I'm supposed to get eternal life. Empty my bank account, sell my house, sell my car, sell everything. Is that what Jesus intends? And so this passage has troubled me. Well, as I was reading this week, I posited a couple possible solutions to this problem of, uh, of works righteousness in this text, in verse 21. And here's my first theory, if you would. Theory number one, I only got two of them for you. Theory number one, to try and explain this passage, is that perhaps when the man asks Jesus about eternal life, 
He's actually asking Jesus about rewards in heaven, not about how to get there. Like this guy shows up, he's made his sacrifices to the temple, he's observed Yom Kippur, he's got his sins forgiven. He's not worried about whether or not he's going to get to heaven. He's actually wondering what kind of rewards am I going to get when I get there. Because when I hear him say eternal life, I, my mind immediately goes to how am I going to get to heaven. But maybe that's really not the question. Maybe it needs to be nuanced a little bit more than that. I mean, after all, Jesus' response to the guy in verse 21 is go sell all that you have and you will have treasures in heaven. He doesn't say go and sell all that you have and you'll get to heaven. He says, go and sell all that you have, and you'll have treasures there. So Jesus' response is kind of rewards-oriented. The problem with that is, verse 25, verse 25 captures the disciples' response to this back-and-forth conversation between Jesus and the rich young ruler. Verse 25 says, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. That is, they were shocked. Jeez, Jesus. I mean, who's gonna, who possibly? I mean, unless I sell everything, liquidate everything, I'm the, that's no other way for me to get to heaven? Is that what you're saying here? And so the response is, who then can be saved? Um, their response confirms, though, what this man is asking. He's asking, how do I get to heaven? That's what this fellow is asking. And verse 25 confirms that. Not, what kind of rewards am I going to get once I get there? Theory number two is my second theory. Possible solution here, number two is that Jesus identifies the real God in this man's life. And that is that it is his money and it is his possessions. Now, I think that solution is circling the target because for certain this guy, he's got lots of possessions and Jesus realizes that he recognizes that point of, of vulnerability in this guy's life. And so he does put his finger on that. I think that's circling the target, but it still leaves Jesus telling him the way for you, buddy, to get to heaven is for you to sell all of your possessions. And once you do that, you'll get to heaven and you'll have treasure waiting on you when you get there. Again, works righteousness. Doesn't really solve the problem. Um, but what, so what I want to do is to walk through this passage. I want to examine the exchange between Jesus and the rich young ruler in detail See if we can figure out why Jesus says what he says in verse 21. Why he gives this guy a works righteousness answer to the question, very clearly, how do I get eternal life? Everybody with me so far? All right. I've I, I thought this week as I was, or not this week, but kind of this morning, I got here terribly early and the guys didn't even see me till like 8.30 or something like that. I came up with my list of stuff. I felt like, um, who's the guy in Princess Bride who says, wait till I get going? You know what I'm Anyway, some of y'all, you can tell me who it is afterwards. I felt like, felt like that guy this morning, like my brain was just going too fast. Uh, yeah, somebody said his name. Anyway, um, so let's take a look at the context. Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 16. And then, like I said, next week we'll do a proper study of the parable itself. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. We'll walk through all this together. Verse 16, and behold, the rich young ruler came to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Notice something about this fellow's question. His question presumes something. His question presumes that eternal life can be earned. He asks, verse 19, what good deed must I do? In other words, what is God looking for? What, in terms of behavior, what is God looking for in terms of religious performance? What religious and good works hoops, Jesus, must I jump through to then be able to have eternal life? Now, the question at its core is faulty. That is, the question is built on a false premise. 
Jesus knows this. He knows you can't earn your way into eternal life. That's not, that's, that's not news to him. But, but how does he get that through to this guy? How does he convince this guy who showed up to ask Jesus this question, who before he ever even asked the question, presumed that you earn eternal life? So that's the dilemma. The dilemma is not whether or not this guy's right and his premise. The dilemma is how do I show this guy that he is wrong? This fellow shows up with what anthropologists and sociologists call a presupposition. I've got a slide for you here. It defines presupposition. A presupposition can be defined as a rock-bottom, foundational belief that all people have that is not testable in a science lab and cannot be observed in nature. We might think of presuppositions as values. We might think of presuppositions as precepts about ultimate reality. For example, that God is real, that's a presupposition. I can't show you God. You say, hey, Gordon, prove to me that God is real. Like, make him materialize. I can't do that. I can't take you out to nature and say, and here is God. But what I can do is I can look at nature, I can observe the miracle of life, and I can conclude, hey, man, that did not just happen by, it's by random. Right? There's a clear design here that produced all of what we know of as life. There is evidence of intelligence behind all the complexity of what we, what we call um, life. Chance could not possibly have been the creator of life on earth. And so I conclude the presupposition that God is real, that there's a creator, a designer behind it all. Now, you put a bunch of these presuppositions together, and they form what sociologists and anthropologists call a world view. Christianity is a compilation of presuppositions. Christianity is a particular way of looking at and interpreting ultimate reality. It's a way of making sense of human existence and our purpose in the world. Again, presuppositions are something that all people have, whether they are Christians or they're not Christians, whether they're deists or they're atheists, all people have presuppositions that are hardwired, built in to how they then go out and interpret ultimate reality. These are rock-bottom, foundational beliefs that when heaped together form our identity, they are our concept of ultimate reality. Again, they help us make sense of the world in which we live. This fellow had a presupposition that showed up to ask Jesus this question. He believed that he could earn his way to heaven. That was his presupposition. He asked Jesus, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And from that presupposition, the behavior, the activity of this guy, of his life, why he went to church on Sunday, why he gave money to the temple and the temple offerings, why he made sacrifices at the temple, why he abstained from certain foods, why he fasted at certain times of the year, all of that behavior was driven by this rock-bottom foundational belief that eternal life could be earned. Would you agree that Jesus has got his work cut out for him? <laughs> All right, this, is, this, is, this is what he's dealing with here. I mean, when you are trying to convince somebody that lying at the core of their being is a lie, friends, that is a tall task. This is probably not something that you can just unravel in a moment or an instant or just expect them to get it. 
This may take some time. It will likely be a process, a process of helping that person come to terms with ultimate reality, helping that person reorient their life and their identity and their behaviors around a new presupposition, a new way of looking at life. So you're basically having to reestablish the foundation at the core of that person. So Jesus realizes that this guy shows up with some deeply ingrained beliefs, and he's willing to help him figure this out, hoping that in the process of their interaction or in the aftermath of their interaction, that the proverbial light bulb will go off in this guy's head, and he'll go, oh, you can't earn eternal life. So let's see how that interaction goes. Verse 17, and Jesus said to the man, why do you ask me about what is good? In other words, you know what's good. There's only one who's good. That would be God. If you would enter life, eternal life, if you want eternal life through merit, then keep the commandments. How about that? The guy responds, verse 18, well, which ones? Which are the commandments? There are 613 of these commandments that I've got, that I'm supposed to keep. I mean, which, can you boil it down a little, maybe make this a little bit shorter, maybe make this a little easier, whatever it is, in order to um, show me, you know, how I'm supposed to do this. So Jesus, still in verse 18, Jesus lists off some of the top commandments. He says, don't murder, don't mess around on your spouse, don't steal, don't lie. Verse 19, honor your father and your mother, love your neighbor. So he's listing off a number of the Ten Commandments, which Jesus knows, okay? He knows. This, this guy, he knows who's standing in front of him. He's a guy who's being observant of Jewish law and Jewish customs. He can tell that just by the, by the fellow's intention of his heart, by, by, by the manner of, his, of his, how he's standing in front of Jesus. He can pick up on that. Um, this guy doesn't lie. Jesus knows he doesn't steal. He knows he doesn't do any of that kind of stuff. Jesus is baiting the fella to feel some measure of self-confidence about his own performance, okay? Are you sh and sure enough, the guy responds, verse 20, well, I've kept those, right? <laughs> I've kept them. In other words, I've checked all those boxes. That's awesome that you mentioned that list, Jesus, because I have got, boom, 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 I've got those down. No problem there. I'm good. But there's still something in this guy's heart where he feels like, I feel like I'm still falling a little short. Like maybe there's some other tweak that needs to happen in my life that will help me to be able to be all the way uh, good to go. Something that will, will tweak my resume. So when I show up in heaven, God will go, oh, yeah, finally. Whew, we got one that has hit the mark, right? So he's wanting that. Because remember, though, again, and so he's wanting to earn that spot in heaven. Because remember, his presupposition is heaven is something that's earned. And that's what, that's what Jesus is dealing with here. Jesus is trying to challenge this fellow. He's trying to help this guy see that salvation, that getting to heaven, is not based on works. It's not based on us doing something, but rather it's based on us putting our faith and trust in Jesus alone. That's where Jesus is trying to usher this guy into. Verse 21. Jesus is about ready to crack the foundation that sits at the heart of this guy. And now everything that's driving his behavior, all of his religious performance. Here we go, verse 21. If you would be perfect, that is, if you want to prepare yourself fully to stand before a holy God and be like, yes, I am all of that, and I'm ready to have my spot into heaven. Hit me with my rewards. The gates throw open wide when I show up at, at heaven's, heaven's doors. Here's what you do, verse 21 He's sitting, oh, yeah, give it to me, give it to me, right? Verse 21, go, sell what you possess. Give to the poor. 
And if you do that, not only will you have your spot in heaven, but there'll be treasure waiting on you when you get there. Now, if you keep reading verse 22, we learn in verse 22 that this fellow had great possessions. Jesus knew that the guy standing in front of him had great wealth. I imagine that the guy kind of looked the part, right? I mean, he probably had a nice polished suit on. Maybe he had, uh, or maybe a, a robe, if you would. Um, he probably had some fresh oil in his hair. They did that back then. Uh, maybe he smelled really nice. I'm sure he was a dapper-looking young fella. He looked the part of a rich young ruler. And so intuiting that the prospect of selling everything this guy has would be an impossible task for him to do, to do Jesus knowing that, Jesus says, well, then, that's the task. That, that's, what I, that's what I want for you to do is to sell everything you got. And then, boom, yeah, sure enough, God will, the doors will fly open and you'll be welcomed right into heaven. It says that the guy went away sorrowful. Why? Because the ask, the religious performance, the good deed that Jesus said, here's the requirement, here's where the bar sets, buddy, is for you to give up all that you have. And it was just too great. Jesus knew that he was creating a criteria that would result in certain failure. In other words, Jesus set the bar so high, he knew the guy would never be able to clear it. And that is the point. Jesus wants this guy to come to the realization that salvation cannot be earned. He's hoping that this guy, when he walks away, maybe he's sitting down to have a meal later that night, maybe just while he's heading down the road back toward home, kind of feeling despondent with his head down, that all of a sudden, oh, he was trying to tell me that I can't earn heaven. Ha. The disciples respond with a bit of shock to all of this, to Jesus' criteria, saying, verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? Jesus, you are setting the bar so high. I mean, there's not gonna, I mean heaven's going to be like a lot of empty chairs, right? So uh, who's gonna, who's possibly could get, there, get into heaven if that's the criteria? Jesus says, verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, you're right. You can't do it. It is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And in just a little while, fellas, after I crawl up on that cross, you're going to understand what God has done for you that you couldn't do for yourself. All right, that's our text for today. Just a quick recap here. We just studied, or what we just studied forms the occasion for the parable that we're going to study next week. But we want to make sure that we get the context right. Otherwise, we might end up with a false interpretation of the parable itself. And I'm going to show you next week how some folks have treated this text, the conclusion that they've drawn out of this parable, and they, they fall far away from where the Lord Jesus is trying, what he's trying to communicate. So as for Jesus' conversation, though, with the rich young ruler, he's trying to unravel a deeply held belief, a rock-bottom foundational belief that this guy has about how you get into heaven, namely that you earn it. And Jesus says, okay, fella, you want to earn it? Try giving up everything that you have, that you possess, which Jesus knows for this fellow represents an impossible task. He's hoping that this fellow will then come to the conclusion, you know what? Ha ha. He was trying to communicate to me all along that my presupposition was wrong, that lying at the core of who I am was a falsehood. You can't earn salvation. All right. Um, 
Everybody okay? It's the second time I've asked that today. Who was the guy from Princess Bride? Was it? Vassini. Vassini. I'm so sorry. I, just a curiosity. It was, I couldn't wait till after church. Right? <laughs> um, all right. So uh, I want to come up for air here for a minute and ask the question that we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? Right? What, what, what do I... I mean, it sounds like Jesus and this rich young ruler were having a conversation. Gordon, you've demonstrated that works righteousness is not what Jesus is teaching. He's not asking me to give up everything that I got and go rent for the rest of my life. That is not what Jesus is asking. So what difference does any of this make to my life? Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. First of all, let me give you some really good news. Okay? The good news is that salvation, getting into heaven cannot be earned friends getting into heaven is not performance based you've been trying to earn god's favor if you've been trying to earn his favor by giving money to this church or to some ministry friends whether or not you do that has no bearing at all on whether or not you get to heaven cleaning up your bad language Choosing to watch Andy Griffith instead of Yellowstone is not going to throw the doors wide open for you when you get to heaven. We cannot make ourselves good enough to the point where God then says, okay, okay, now, now, now we're dealing with something here. Come on in. You know, you finally hit the mark and, and you can come into heaven. Friends, this is what separates Christianity from every other ism and ology in the world. Hindus, i got a picture of them for you here, require you to go bathe in the Ganges. That picture over there, you know, people getting wet. Requires you to go bathe in the Ganges. And if you don't bathe in the Ganges River, then you're not going to have a happy afterlife. Mormons require two years of missionary service. If you don't do the two years of missionary service, then, uh, you know, you'll not be in having a happy afterlife. Jehovah's Witnesses require their uh, constituents, their members, to go witness, to go knock on doors and hand, in, hand you tracts and to stand out in front of the courthouse and hand out tracts in front of the courthouse and log so many hours because they're trying to work their way into God's acceptance. Muslims require prayers at certain times. There's a picture of them walking around Mecca. You got to once in a lifetime make a trip to that place and walk around that black box with all those other people and then lay down and have your prayers and do all that stuff. You got to jump through the religious hoops if you're ever going to make it to heaven. And Jesus is trying to say, our Savior the Lord Jesus is trying to say, those hoops that you're jumping through are frivolous. They will do nothing to move the needle for you in your relationship with God. If you're looking for the Bible's commentary on how God looks upon your religious works, look no further than Romans 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short. I don't care how good you are. You fall short. You can... <clears throat> religious performance yourself to death right you can good deeds help old ladies across the street spend time at the food bank you can do all there's a place for all that but none of that opens the doors or the gates of heaven to you that's all religious performance none of that will elevate you to a place that you will then become acceptable or as jesus told the rich young ruler perfect in god's sight now that raises a question I don't get saved that way <laughs> how do i then get saved if it's not through religious performance if it's not by being good enough how then do i get saved great question the bible gives us a super clear 
answer. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's how you get saved. We are justified. We are made right in God's eyes, not through our works, like the, religious, or like the rich young ruler was trying to do. We are made right in God's eyes through faith in Jesus. Paul continues, verse 8, for the, by the grace, that's what God does for us, that we can't do for ourselves, we don't even deserve it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Friends, faith in Jesus is the activator, and this is not your own doing. You don't save yourself. Salvation is the gift of God. Does that sound like somebody worked for it? No. It's the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works, so that nobody can stand before God and go, look at my list, you know, look at my list of all the stuff I've done, God. Over in Romans 3 and verse 24, Paul says it this way, verse 24, we are justified by God's grace. It is a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Faith in Jesus, friends, is the activator putting our faith and our trust for eternity in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, Jesus saved us, not because of works that we did in righteousness, but according to his own mercy shown to us on the cross. Friends, the only way to get to heaven is through the blood of Jesus, and we appropriate that blood to our lives by putting our faith and trust for eternity in that blood. The hymn writer was trying to drive this point home when he wrote, what can wash away my sins? Yeah, there you go. Nothing else. Peter, the guy that Jesus left in charge of the church, said this, Acts 15 and verse 11. But, but we believe that we will be saved through human performance. He, he said we believe that we'll be saved by driving the speed limit. Or we'll be saved by, by giving to charity? No, we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Friends, salvation is not something that you earn. If you're here today and you've been wondering whether or not you'll ever be good enough for God to allow you into heaven, or whether or not you'll ever be good enough to enter into a relationship with your creator, with the God of the universe, friends, let Jesus Christ shatter that presupposition. We do not gain access to God on the basis of performance. We gain access to God, access to eternal life, by putting our faith and our trust in the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Amen and amen and amen. Friends, God does not love us less because our performance stinks. Sometimes it does. But he doesn't love me any less when it does. God doesn't love, flip side of that, God doesn't love me any more when my performance is exemplary. Friends, our relationship with God is not based on performance. Our relationship with God is based on what Jesus did on the cross. And I appropriate what Jesus did on the cross in my life by putting my faith, my hope, my trust for getting through those gates in what Jesus did for me. Amen? Now, you may say, uh, Gordon, you know what? That sounds an awful lot like they're talking about license to sin. Like, I can just go around and do however I want. Well, hey, again, I baited you on this a couple times. If you come back next week, we'll address that issue. So, hey, look. Today, it's important that we establish in our minds the presupposition that Jesus was trying to teach this fella that getting into heaven is not performance 
based. It is through our faith in the blood of Jesus plus nothing else. Friends, that is the good, whoo, good news of the gospel. Number two, second difference this makes to your life, and I'll be brief. Notice that Jesus did not just tell this guy, hey, you know what, you're wrong. He didn't do that. If he had, I imagine the guy would have gone, well, I just disagree with your presupposition. Right? No, Jesus had to show this guy that his presupposition was wrong. And that because it was so, he had to do that because it was so deeply ingrained into his identity, it was driving all of his behaviors, right? He had to help this guy come to the conclusion for himself, not just tell him that it was wrong, but he had to help him figure this out for himself. Maybe some of y'all have noticed that in the court of public opinion, Christianity gets treated with a much higher degree of hostility than other religions of the world. Have you ever noticed that? Why is that? It's because the basic presuppositions of Christianity call into question what the rest of the world believes. On its face, Christianity is different than every other ism and ology that's out there. What does this mean for your life and mine? First of all, know that sometimes the people that you and I are talking to are not ready to hear the truth. Just not ready. Sometimes it takes major life events to shake those foundations, like the loss of a loved one or facing death oneself. And then people start to ask very sincerely and openly the questions, how do I get eternal life? Major life events like the birth of a child or the loss of a job or a health scare Stuff that jolts people awake and brings them to the table ready to at least to listen. But until that time, here's what we do, okay? Here's what we do for the rich young ruler. We love them unconditionally. We listen to them. We plant seeds of truth in their mind and in their heart. We say, you know what? There's something for you to think about. I have engaged in conversations with people sometimes that have taken that conversation to places that they just weren't ready to hear it, and I end up getting a hostile response. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say, not trying to create a cop-out here for evangelism. That's not what I'm saying. Um, I would be willing to bet, though, that there are people in all of our lives who we've tried to have those kind of conversations with, and it feels like I'm casting my pearls before swine. In other words, they're just going to kick it in the dirt and do away with it, and they don't want to hear it. Again, I'd be willing to bet that though there's people in each of our lives who, who because of their hostile response, are living, this is evidence, their hostility is evidence that they're living according to presuppositions on their face that are lies. Lies resting at the very core of their identity. Lies resting at the very core of what's driving their behaviors and who they are, who they see themselves, how they interpret ultimate reality. These may be good people, but they're deceived. And their lives are built on falsehoods, or their lives are built on falsehoods. What I want to do today in closing is simply to pray for those people. And then after the communion elements are passed and we've had an opportunity, we're going to jump into worship there, close out with some music. After the communion elements are passed, after the trays come by, you may want to make your way up here to the front. Maybe you want to bend a knee on behalf of those that you know are wrestling and struggling. Maybe they're not even asking the questions yet. How do I get eternal life? But we need God to shake some stuff up and to, to, to dig into their heart in places where we can't touch and to cause some of that foundation to begin to crack 
so they become open to the truth of Christianity, to the truth of the gospel. Do you have to come up front to pray for them? No, of course not. You can pray for them right where you're sitting, but if you sense God leading you this morning to come and bend your knee on behalf of that loved one, or on behalf of that brother, or on behalf of that sister, or on behalf of that parent, or on behalf of that friend of yours at school, whomever it may be, you come, and we'll, let, we'll pray to the Lord together to crack those foundations. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for uh, just another encounter with truth. Lord, it shapes us, it molds us, it grounds us. Yet, Lord, you know there's people in all of our lives that don't live with the same presuppositions. They see and interpret the world differently than how your word teaches. So, God, we lift them up to you now. We pray, Lord, that uh, wherever they may be in space, Lord, that your Holy Spirit can reach out to them. Your Holy Spirit can touch their lives. You can awaken in their heart a desire to know you or at least to discover truth. Lord, set them on that path. Hear our prayer today. Move in the lives of those that are heavy on our hearts. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your broken body. We thank you for your shed blood as we celebrate this time of remembering what you have done for us. Holy Spirit, guide and direct our prayers. Guide and direct our time. At this time, reassure us that we are indeed uh, yours, children of God, headed for heaven one day because we put our faith and our trust in your good work. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.